uh, heaven's perspective on the story that we just read. Kind of instead of doing what we've largely been doing over the last number of weeks, which is showing how Jesus uses the kind of gritty, mundane stuff of life, farming and parties and uh, sheeps and goats, these very everyday mundane things to show us what the kingdom landed and real human experience looks like. I want to kind of zoom out and look as, with as wide, or, or maybe the better way to put it is sort of as high a lens as we can, and to show you what was going on in heaven, as it were, when the events that land in, in sheeps and goats, right, like we were just talking about, and in a barn, and all of these things in the everyday of life. Um, because sometimes we need to remember that there's more at stake and more going on in just the everyday stuff of life than we tend to realize. Like sometimes we need to be shaken up in our perspective to realize just how consequential these things that we can get too used to saying, especially things like the things that we say around Christmas, how unbelievably significant they are and how unbelievably significant they are, not just cosmically, but to our very own everyday that just the stuff going on in our lives. And I know that most of us walk in here with just a lot of stuff going on. And so, biblically, the place that does this most dramatically is the book of Revelation, which is not normally a, a book that you preach from during the Christmas season. But there's a particular part of Revelation that I think is, is very specifically talking about the events around Jesus' coming into the human story. And uh, some of those knowing laughs about Revelation are, before we even go here, I want to give you fair warning, that the, uh, the images of Revelation are kind of wild because it's a particular type of literature. It's a particular type of book that's called apocalyptic. And apocalyptic, the whole idea of apocalyptic is, uh, the, it's literally the combination of two words, apo, which is this Greek uh, particle that means uh, the, the taking off of something, and calypso, apocalypso, apocalypso. Calypso is a, is a veil over your eyes, picture like, you know, you've probably seen a bride wearing. So it's the taking off of a, of a veil, which is an interesting combination of words because really what that's getting at is, is that apocalyptic literature is meant to take the veil off of our eyes that only sees what's here in front of us, what we can smell, taste, feel, observe, measure, and it's trying to welcome us into particularly the spiritual realities that stand behind the physical realities with which we are more familiar. And so even as weird and as wild as what I'm about to read is, as I had one professor who used to say that apocalyptic literature is actually not an escape from reality, it's an escape to ultimate reality. That it's not that, yes, these images are meant to uh, not be literal in the sense of necessarily this is exactly what it looks like. We're going to get a little picture of heaven here. But it, but it is closer in what it's trying to evoke in us. So used to just, you know, driving down Route 1 or 27 or whatever it is in just our everyday lives. And it's trying to tell us, no, there's so much more than meets the eye. And this is the attempt. What it makes me think of, of all things, is me and my boys watch a show called Craig of the Creek. Anybody familiar with Craig of the Creek? Craig of the Creek, 
Uh, pretty decent, pretty decent cartoon. I mean, there's times where I'm like, you guys want to watch Craig the Creek? Oh, you do? You do? Yeah, I'll make the sacrifice and watch. But I actually kind of like. Um, Craig the Creek, it's about these uh, three friends who, uh, who make a fort down by a creek and all these adventures that they have. But one of my favorite parts of the show is that every now and then, they'll take a very normal circumstance that's happening and they'll completely change even the way that the scene looks and how it's animated. <clears throat> a lot of times they change it into kind of an anime look, a way more dramatic, way more adventurous look, right? Hey, my boys are tracking with me, so here we go. Um, and they make a regular moment way more epic. And what they're doing, especially if, if you're an adult, what they're doing is they're showing you what that kid sees in that moment. So like there's a scene that we always laugh about. Exactly. There's the scene that we always talk about where, where they're having a water balloon fight. And it's just a water balloon fight like you've seen many times. But it changes in one moment to this way more anime, way more adventurous. And all of a sudden, they're in like the most epic battle that you've ever seen. But this is how they're actually experiencing that moment, even though when you go back to sort of normal life, it's just a bunch of kids kind of lamely, barely even touching each other with these balloons, and they're just kind of splatting on the floor. That is, to me, one of the best representations of what apocalyptic literature is meant to do. It's meant to say, yeah, you experience life as just everyday, everyday life, just the mundane stuff of going about your life. But if you could click into some of the spiritual realities that stand behind your everyday life, you would see something far more epic, far more consequential, far more meaningful than you would otherwise be able to imagine. So apocalyptic is meant to stir us up to see it in that way. And so as amazing, as supernatural as even the Christmas story itself is, and it's one of the most supernatural, you know, it has plenty of shocking, wild stuff going on in it anyway. I just thought that looking at a scene in Revelation that I think is talking about those very same events might just continue to stir our imaginations a little bit. So if you would turn with me to Revelation 5. Mike, I realize I didn't tell you this. Could, could you put all of Revelation 5 up at some point? You don't have to do it right now, but could you make that happen? Thank you, Mike. Um, and since we have time, I'm just going to read this, this whole chapter. And I want you to picture that we are going from maybe first century Bethlehem and where um, we're seeing the events maybe. Maybe we haven't seen the angels because that's kind of supernatural and wild. But maybe we're just happen upon this little stable and we look in and we say, what's going on in there? And it's a very young mother and her betrothed who are there, and there's this, this baby crying in the feeding trough in that place, and we're saying, what's going on here? And in some ways, the answer is what I'm about to read. So Revelation 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. This is God. This is God the Father, the creator of the world. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. 
And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Just so you don't get lost, I just want to be your Sherpa a little bit here and, and kind of share a little of what's going on in, in these heights. So we are getting a vision into the throne room of the universe, and there sits God the Creator. And in his hand, we are told that it's a scroll. And what this scroll seems to represent is all of human history. This is the book of all books. It is, the, it is the recording of every single event that has ever happened in every single human life that has ever existed. It's the story of the history of the world. And, and uh, in the sense of let me be your Sherpa, this is clear from the rest of Revelation, what's going on here. And it's sealed, did you notice, with what? Seven seals. Now, I don't know about you. Hopefully, you got some Christmas cards, and uh, some of them come in envelopes, right? And most of them come sealed, uh, unless they're just the ones that come as postcards, but they come sealed. Every now and then, someone will seal it, you know, lick it closed, or you should probably use a little, uh, little yeah, spongy thing like, like my wife has figured out to do because it's way too much licking. Um, and so you, you sponge it closed, and then maybe sometimes someone puts a nice little special Christmas sticker on it, right? Um, and that seals it even more. The fact that there are seven seals on this is meant to all the more deepen our sense that what's here is, is impenetrable. You're not getting into it. There, there's no one who can, who can mess with this. And remember, it's in the hand of Almighty God. In other words, what's going to happen in human history is something that, that we, that, that no mere creature has a say in what happens. This is talking about the sovereignty of God, that he is the one in control of all things. And the seven seals, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals, known in heaven or on earth or under the earth, who is able to open the scroll or look into it? Now, verse 4, And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Why is he weeping? He looks, he looks at the story of human history. And they say, no one, no one can change the course of what's happening here. And this causes the one who's having this vision to weep. He weeps for the same reason you and I weep. Because we know that the natural course of events of human history, left unchecked by anything outside of the system, is cause for tremendous sorrow. This is why we weep. Because there are moments in our life where we feel like outside of some kind of intervention, outside of the human story itself. Where is there hope in this world? I bet that some of the things that you are most struggling with, some of the things that I am most sad about in my life really come down to the fact that we are hyper aware that we live in a world that just does not function for our safety, for our happiness, for our good, for our security, for our flourishing. That the human story is one full of pain, and full of suffering, full of sin, full of rebellion, full of death. And so he weeps and he says, that's it. It's sealed. It's just going to be what it is. This is the idea enormously 
um, prevalent in our particular cultural moment, especially over the last century or so, that, put it this way, that we, philosophy now basically agrees that we live in what's called a closed system. A closed system. In other words, what happens in the human story is just the natural playing out of the human machine plus time plus space plus energy just kind of all banging together. And what will be, will be. That, as one famous philosopher put it, that if there are windows to heaven, those windows are closed. This is the, the death of God movement over the last century. This is just the fundamental idea taken so much for granted by, by most of our society, if not necessarily in what they say on a survey of belief, functionally, we believe that our life is primarily of our own making because nothing's coming to help. Nothing from outside of us is going to come and help. Certainly nothing from outside of time and space and matter and these kinds of things. And what John, who receives this vision, is reminding us is that is far from just, uh, I, don't, I don't know, um, far from intellectual sophistication that has finally figured out that there is no God. If that's true, John is saying, the only natural response is to weep. If no one's coming to save us, then we weep. If no one is worthy to actually do anything consequential about the natural flow of events in your story or in the story of humanity, then all we can do is weep. And the way that John recounts this is, I began to weep loudly, and, and actually the, um, I began, it, it's just the doubling of the two words for weep. He's completely undone by this. He's weeping weepily, is what he's saying. And this is what we should do. Put it simply, if the Christmas story is not true, if it's just another fairy tale, if it's just another myth, then we should weep. Almost immediately, though, he receives a response. One of the elders, these, these significant human figures um, who, remember, themselves are not found worthy to do anything about the sealed scroll. This is what's extraordinary here is no one was found worthy. No one. You know how many billions of people have had the opportunity to be worthy? Do you know how many of billions of people have tried to be the ones to actually change things on their own? I'm counted among them. One of the things that this reminds us of is the, in God's perspective, the fundamental human condition is one of unworthiness. And that's very bad news. Unless there is not only one found worthy himself, but one who then comes into our stories and somehow makes us worthy, right? This has been the point of all of the parables. The the the, the weeds and the wheat, the sheep and the goats, right? All of those basically land in what you need to be is a different kind of being, right? And what we're reminded of here is the problem with the human story is there is an unworthiness, a lack of power, a lack of ability, a lack of moral and ethical perfection that makes any of us capable of doing anything without outside help beyond just kind of the natural course of what humans do, which as we learn from the very first chapter of the story is make a complete and total mess of things. And yet he is told, 
by this elder, weep no more. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And this is when we say, amen, amen, amen. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. This is a figure from the Old Testament who would have been promised. And who doesn't want a lion to come and do what lions do, right? This is why C.S. Lewis, in his great uh, uh, analogy of the Christian faith, the Chronicles of Narnia, chooses as the Christ figure who? Aslan, who is a what? A lion, right? We want a lion to come and to conquer and to show themselves powerful, What better image of power and might than the literal king of the jungle, right? And we're told that one has come who is our lion, who is the one that we have awaited. I love that Jesus here, one of the names that he's given is the root of David, which itself is an Old Testament, which is interesting, right? Because chronologically, who comes first, David or Jesus? David, right? Chronologically in the human story. So how can it be that Jesus, who comes second, is the root of the one who came before him? Isn't that interesting? It's just an interesting way of talking about the fact that Jesus and the role that he plays was something that was planned from the foundation of the world. That David is both the one from whom Jesus comes, but David is also the one who points forward then to Jesus. Again, this is one unlike any other human being. He can be the root of one who lived 500 years before him. That's an extraordinary reality, or 1,000 years before him, actually. He has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. You see, this is ultimately what's happening on Christmas morning, is that at last there is a human being sent into the story who can break the seven seals who can actually enter the seemingly impenetrable damage, pain, suffering, rebellion, and death even of the human story. He is breaking the seals. That's the image that I kept getting as I was studying this, is like when, when Jesus actually shows up, when he is actually born, when he actually breathes his first breath of air, I can almost hear the seven seals break, whatever that might have sounded like cosmically, because there is one coming who can actually do something about all that's gone wrong, and he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Check this out, though. Verse 6, and between the throne and the four living creatures, this is just a representation around the throne of God, uh, represented there is, is all of the created order, animals and human beings and, and angels and spiritual beings are all around. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a, what? A lamb. Isn't this interesting? What were we led to expect? What kind of animal? A lion. Why is he seeing a lamb? So a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. So this isn't your everyday lamb. Which are the seven spirits of God. So imagine this lamb <laughs> walking in. Um, imagine this at the petting zoo. Like he comes around the corner. What's up, bro? Um, and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. 
And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. There's too much here to preach uh, in a simple sermon. The lion has shown up. Aslan is on the move, as the books say. He has conquered. And how a lion conquers is through force and might and strength. That's why we want a lion. So he hears that the lion has come, and yet when he turns and he sees, the actual one that he sees is a lamb. And I think that in that is everything you need to know about the strange, strange, fundamental core belief that we have as people of Jesus. Is that God has come and done what no one else could possibly do. He has broken the seals. He has entered the human story. He has turned things from the utterly bad, from the unalterably bad, if that's a word, to somehow a story of redemption. But he didn't do it through strength and might and power, the way that we think of strength and might and power. Instead, he did it stunningly by giving of himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. He did it as cliche, as cheesy as this might sound to you. It is everything we stake our lives on. He did it through love. He did it by giving himself away. That the one who sits on the throne and has all authority, the one to whom the created order, all of humanity, all of the spiritual realms, rightly bows and every day can't get beyond. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty came down and became all of the brokenness, all of the mess. Holy, holy, holy became sin and shame and brokenness and woundedness and even went into death itself. This is how the lion conquered. He conquered as a lamb. And so when you hear this incredible news, that salvation, that redemption is available, and yet it comes through a lamb as one slain, we are standing right in line with the shepherds who heard, the Savior has come. Christ the Lord is here. Where is he? Um, so he's in a barn. Uh, he's, he's in a manger, that thing, a feeding trough. And, um, and he's, a, he's, a, he's a baby. Right? You feel the strangeness of that? You feel how surprising that is? That the one who sits on the throne comes, and he comes the way that he does. And as we said on Friday, as we'll say again and again, is that's because you misunderstand who God is. If you, don't, if you merely think of a lion raging and roaring, if you merely think of that, now that's what he is. That is the authority that he holds. That is the strength and unparalleled power that he has in this universe. And yet he comes to us and makes himself knowable in the form of lamb, a sacrifice on our behalf. This makes him worthy of the praise of the cosmos. They sang a new song, a new song. I love that, a new song. A new scene in the story of human history deserves a new soundtrack is what's going on here. 
They sing a new song, a song that has never crossed their lips before, a song that even heaven itself in some sense did not anticipate because what Jesus has done is so utterly unexpected. It's so utterly unique. They have observed the whole human story and, they, and then they say, wait, but this one is actually doing the thing, God, that you said that all humans were supposed to do. That means, does that mean what we think it means? Does that mean that they can all be saved now? Does that mean that their unworthiness can become worthiness because he's their representative? No longer is it the first Adam, but this second Adam who has come? Is there salvation possible? God says, yeah, exactly what this means. And so they sing, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you are slain and by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests. Do you see how it changes their fundamental status, right? This is not just about what Jesus has done. It's what it means for us. It's what it means about the transformation that we're able to go through. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. We have gone from those who laid down the authority given to us, laid down our crowns, and, and wanted to run the show ourselves. We have been remade into kings and queens by what Jesus has done. We were without access to God ourselves. Now we are those through whom others can access God. We are priests and priestesses. And they shall reign on the earth, no longer as slaves, but as those who are actually fulfilling what it meant to be human, which is that we would have authority and add to the flourishing of this world rather than merely to worship it and be enslaved by it. Then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders of the voice of many, or the, excuse me, and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. That's a biblical way of saying 30 bajillion, right? Like these numbers that kids make up. It's straining at, really what it's straining at here is not even just the numbers of these spiritual warriors who are singing this song. It's trying to give us a little bit of a glimpse of the volume of what's being sung here. I don't know what the loudest place that you've ever been in is. Um, likely it was a concert of some kind, maybe in an enclosed place, and your ears are ringing when you come out of that. I, I mean, we're picturing hundreds of times louder than that. You're talking about the cosmos responding to this. And what do they say? They say, worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom, and might. Do you see how these are all things that human beings have tended to mishandle? It's why the story is closed. It's why the story of human history is one full of weeping, is because we mishandle power and wealth and wisdom and might. But he is worthy to receive it. Honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and I love this image, every creature in heaven that means the spiritual beings, beings. And on earth, we're talking birds and rhinoceroses and elephants and every single one of your pets. And under the earth, we're talking whales and dolphins and sea monsters and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory forever and ever. And the four living creatures, those who represent creation, have a simple response. Amen, they say. And the elders representing us as humanity just fall down and they worship this one. It's the Christmas story, right? That's what Christmas, that's what Christmas is really about, Charlie Brown, right? Do you see how getting some of that imagery behind this takes the story 
of a, you know, in, in this podunk town in the middle of nowhere. And these two people who had no idea that, that cosmic things would be at stake in their simple acts of faith, in their simple faithfulness, who had no idea all the, 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 the elements of creation that were awaiting the arrival of the lion. And yet so it was that 2,000 years ago, the only thing that can enter your story and my story and actually do something about it came the most unlikely of circumstances. The lion came to be a lamb for us. And so this very simple landing of, of a pretty wild passage there, which is, um, I want you to think about some of, the, some of the things that most burden you right now. I know some of that looking around this room, what that is, changes that you're going through, losses that you've experienced, fear that likely is going through you for various reasons, sin that you continue to struggle with, that, that you wish you could be done with. And I want to ask you from a very loving pastoral place, not an accusatory place, because I'm, I'm saying this to myself as well, is how much of all of the, the negative emotions that you're responding to those situations with really have to do with the fact that you fundamentally believe you're on your own? That you fundamentally believe that the, if there are windows to heaven, they're closed. Or at least the ones that you'd have access to are closed. That what you're going through is just, it, it, it's just going to be what it is because nothing's coming to help. When what the Christmas message is meant to tell us, what a passage like this is especially meant to tell us is, no, no, no. Turn up the volume. Turn up the volume. See if you can, or, or maybe better, better yet, see if you can, you can adjust the, uh, the, the little knob of, of your heart of your mindset, and tune into heaven. Because what you'll hear are shouts of the worthiness of one who has come, who makes all the difference, who takes all of those things, your worst sin, your worst shame, even the threat of death itself, and is able to speak a word of redemption, of hope, of salvation over it. Because the windows of heaven are blown wide open on Christmas morning and are left open for all of eternity. Heaven has come to earth. It's invading earth. And it's setting up outposts in little, little communities like ours all over this planet where we begin to experience the invasion of heaven into the everyday, not just privately, in our, own, in our own experience of the presence of God, but through one another. Some of you have experienced this this year, I bet, where you feel like, man, God really showed up for me, and he showed up for me through this person. He showed up for me through this that happened at discipleship course. He showed up to me through, through the preaching of his word on, on whatever specific Sunday, an encouraging word that someone gave me out in the lobby one day. Right? This is what we're invited into as well. There's another side of this is that we become a kingdom of priests and priestesses, which is to say we become part of the means by which God invades these stories. 
we become emissaries of the Lamb. What's hard about that, though, is that we all want to be lions and lionesses, right? (laughs) And instead, our conquering comes the way that our conqueror comes the way that he came. So yeah, I feel like lambs a lot of times. This is what the early Christian missionary and apostle Paul said. Yeah, like sheep led to the slaughter. That's how it feels a lot. But like our ultimate lamb, our ultimate sheep who is led to the slaughter for the salvation of the world, what works death in us sometimes means life to other people. That's also the strange imitation of Christian faith. There's a ton of hope here, but there's also a a taking up of your cross, right? And so we're headed into another year that looks like it's going to be heavy. But church, there's one who goes before us. There's one who sits in heaven right now with all authority, who holds human history in his hands, right? This is a way of saying no matter what happens in your story, it, is ne- it never overwhelms the plan of God. It never leaves him wringing his hand saying, wait, how do I make good from this? So what I want us to do before we take communion is I just want to give you, right, Christmas is loud and busy normally. Um, so I want to give you, while we're sitting here and while the kids are seemingly pretty chill right now, Um, I just want to give you two or three minutes to just reflect on these truths, um, to get quiet uh, here in in the midst of of kind of probably one of the last times we'll be in kind of Advent, Christmas mode. Um, Just talk to God. Tell him what's heavy on your heart right now and ask him, God, can you really do something about this? Can you really bring hope where I'm hopeless? Can you really bring comfort where I'm hurting? Can you really bring salvation and redemption where I just continue to struggle with the same things? Um, So whatever you need to do, uh, again, since we have a little bit of time this morning, I just want to, are you willing to play, Rach? Is that cool? Um, Just want to give you three or four minutes. um, Pray. Go to God. Talk to him. uh, Tell him what's on your heart. And then we'll move into communion in just a little bit.